Amen. Amen. Well, if, uh, if you're just joining us today, we are we're a few weeks into a, a newish series called Move, and the premise behind this is really simple. The people that live the greatest adventures in life are those most easily moved by God. See, we, we live in a world that offers us a lot to do, right? We have a lot of motion, but there's a difference between motion and movement. Motion is just busyness. It's just getting things done. We have a lot of that, but it's hard to find something worth doing. It's hard to find something that brings fulfillment and, and real joy and real satisfaction in life. That, that's movement. That's going to a place you've never been before. And God created you to move. God created you to live an adventure. Your life is meant to be an adventure lived with God. You're supposed to love living your life not wishing you had someone else's. And so we want to move. We want to learn how to move with God. That's what we're, we're looking at. That's what we're studying because God is always on the move. Last week we talked about dancing, which is a very natural place to start, right? Um, if you weren't here last week, listen to the podcast if you want to catch up. But the idea was really simple. In a dance, someone leads and someone follows. And if we want to move with God, we've got to give him permission to lead us because he doesn't force us to follow him. And so the, the question is, am I trying to get God involved with what I'm doing, or am I trying to get involved with what God is doing? And there's a difference between those two. I usually find myself on the wrong end of that, trying to convince God to be part of my plan, instead of spending the time asking him what, what his plan really is. We've got to let God lead us. Today I want to move on to a different kind of movement, and that movement specifically is moving on. So today we're moving on to, to moving on. That's the movement today. Have you ever noticed how hard it is in life to move on to something new? Like, have you ever had this experience, I have this a lot, where you come across something that you've never tried before, you've never done this before, some new piece of technology maybe, or some new experience, and it is fundamentally better than what you had before. There's no question. And if you look at all the list of features or all the, the pluses, all the, the benefits of it, there's no question that it is just better than what you've used before, but you still hold out because you just don't, you don't want to change. I'll never forget about seven, eight years ago when, when things like, like Kindles were first becoming popular and the whole eBooks thing happened. I was like appalled. I love to read. More than that, I love the idea of reading, and so I buy a lot of books, and I read the first few pages of, of all of them. And if you come to my house, you'll be like, wow, this guy, he's, he's really well-read. Um, I have no idea what most of those books say. I just know the first, the first few pages. I just lose interest. But I love to read. I really do. And, and I do buy a lot of books. And I have certain books that are like my, my absolute favorite kind of books to read. They're actually pretty boring to most people, but I love them. And so when, when the e-books came out, I was like, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to sit and read on a screen. I'll, all of a sudden, I started to get very pretentious. And I started to romanticize real books, like paper books. I started saying things like, I'm not going to read in front of a screen even though I spend a lot of time in front of other screens, somehow that screen's a bad screen. I started saying stupid things to Megan because she was encouraging me to buy one. I started saying things like, you know, I, just, I, I like the experience with real books. Like, I like the smell of a book. And that's, that's dumb. That's not true. Have you ever been in Barnes & Noble and seen someone sniffing books and being like, hmm, mm, this is a good one. This is a good one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this one home. Like, no, people don't do that. I don't buy a book based on how it smells, but I started saying things like that, romanticizing real books. I started saying things like, I just like the way the paper feels in my hands. And, and, and when you have paperwork to do at your job, you don't go, yes, oh, all this paper. Ooh, this is so soothing. No, it's, paper is by nature. Paper can cut you. I mean, it's not, it's not a comfortable thing at all. I, I, just, I didn't want to move on to the new thing. I wanted to, to hold out. And I'll never forget, I, I bought Megan a Kindle for her birthday. She asked for one. 
And I decided I would set it up for her, which means I just get to play with it for like a day because I'm setting it up. I get to use your new toy before you do because I have to set it up. That's really what it was. And all of a sudden, I'm just bombarded with all these features that are perfect for my life. Like if you have a Kindle, you don't lose your books because they're always in the cloud and I lose books all the time. And if you, if you have a Kindle, it always remembers where you were so you don't need bookmarks and, and you can't ever forget where you were in the book that you started reading three years ago but you didn't finish it. That happens to me constantly. If you're someone like me who highlights a lot of stuff or underlines a lot of stuff because you might use it later, you might be inspired by it, you want to go back to it, you don't have to thumb through books and try to find all the stuff you underlined. You can just search for one word you remember and there it is. I mean, the list of features went on and on, but still I waited two years to move on to, to a tablet, to some other type of, of reading because I just I didn't want to move on. I, I wanted to hold out. There's something about us as people that, that tends to live looking backwards. I mean, there's something about us, something about how we're wired, where it's very easy for us to live looking back, holding on to the past with an iron grip. Like that phrase that we hear a lot in our culture, the good old days. We've all heard that, right? You've, you've all used it. If you're above 35, you have used the phrase, the good old days. Remember, remember the good old days? You know, the good old days when, when people were like this and life was simpler and everyone was more moral and the world was just better. It's always us complaining about the previous generation, which is funny because I was born in the 80s, and so my generation had video games and, and you know, TV and cable and all this technology, and so we'll say things like, remember the good old days when, like, when you had to sit in a room with a friend to play a video game and not play online? I mean, this is, this, what's this world coming to, right? It's stupid. But, but you know what's interesting about that phrase, the good old days? You know when that phrase originated? 1726, that's the first example we have in history of the phrase, the good old days. And it was used in the exact same way that we use it. It was someone writing about how much better the past was than the present. And so what you have to think about is that since the 1720s, every generation has been pointing back saying, those were the good old days. Those were the good old days. Those were the good old days. And, and every generation we've been a part of is the generation that apparently is doing it so badly that the previous generation says, oh, I wish we had the good old days. It's just how it is. It's not because today is worse than it was in the 1720s. None of us want to go back to the 1720s. None of us. It's that human nature, being what it is, we, we live looking backwards. The pull of the past is, is really strong. And it's also really dangerous. The way the past pulls at us, if we're not careful, it's like an undercurrent in the ocean. You can find yourself stuck in a place you don't want to be in. You can find yourself stuck in the past. Unable to move on. Unable to move forward. We want to be people who move forward in life. I mean, if there's one direction you want to move, it's forward. But you cannot move forward if you cannot move on. If you can't move on from, from what maybe has happened to you in the past, what someone did, what someone said, some experience you had that, that hurt you, and those experiences are real and they're traumatic often, but if we can't move on from those, we'll never move forward into the life that God has for us. So if we want to be people who move forward, we've got to move on. It's always been this way. Always. In, in 1 Samuel, there's this man named Samuel. It's a well-named book. And Samuel is a prophet from God. And at that time in, in history... God led his people in a very simple way. There was a prophet. He spoke to the prophet. The prophet then spoke to the, the people. And that was the way God decided to deliver his information and his instructions. But the people, they got tired of that. They didn't want that anymore. So they wanted to move on, but not in a, in a good way, actually. And they came to Samuel and they said, hey, this whole prophet God thing, it's not working for us. We want a king. And we looked at this a little bit last week, 1 Samuel 8, 6. Samuel was displeased with their request. And he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. 
for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. So do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. This is a great example, again, of what we talked about last week. God will not force us to do things his way. He often, often relents and lets us do things the way we want to do things. And so Samuel is upset because the people are saying, look, we don't want to do this God's way. We want a king. And even though he knows that's a bad idea, as soon as God says those words, do what they say, that becomes a command from God to Samuel. Samuel has now heard God tell him, find a king. And he makes it his life's purpose to find a king. And they find one. Samuel finds one who he thinks is the best king. We actually meet this person in 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of some people that were the son of some people from the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Saul is the first king, and he's the first king. What's the criteria? He's handsome. He's a looker, right? He's like a male model athlete kind of guy. So that guy looks like a king. If we put a crown on his head, I mean, man, that guy, woo! That guy's a king. Because look at history. The greatest leaders are always attractive. George Washington, right? Look at that guy. I mean, that's... Abe Lincoln, he's a stud. Winston Churchill is like one of my favorite leaders in history, Winston Churchill. I mean, that guy. If, if you want to have some, some fun, research Winston Churchill's life. That guy was hilarious. Like one time in Parliament, because that's how they, they do things over there, um, this, this woman yelled at him in Parliament because she, she didn't like him. She said, sir, if you were my husband, I would put arsenic in your tea. And Churchill responded, ma'am, if I were married to you, I would drink it. Like he was awesome. <laughs> Winston Churchill was the man. He was the man. But it wasn't, it wasn't his looks that, that got him by. Now, obviously, the, the criteria that they're using to choose the king, is, it's not the right criteria, but give them a break. They've never had a king before. This is their first election of sorts. So they went with the whole looks thing. And at first, things go well. At first, Saul, I mean, he's, he's awesome. He has instant success. The people love him. He's, he's winning military victories. And they all feel like, man, we nailed it. We've got the right king. But it doesn't take very long before this success sort of spirals into disaster. And it gets so bad. It's such a train wreck that Saul is now unfit to be the king. And that means Samuel has to go find a new king. And Samuel is, he's, he's, I mean, he's rejected. He's He's hurt. Because he's the one that chose Saul. He's the one that put his seal of approval on Saul. And now he's realizing his mistake and he's crushed. And he goes into agony. He goes into mourning. He literally shuts himself away. And he just sits there and, and relives over and over again the mistakes that he's made. And he thinks about how, how big of a deal this is. And he can't get over it. And eventually God has to speak to him. And we see this conversation in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I love what God says. God addressed Samuel. So how long are you going to mope over Saul? You know I've rejected him as king over Israel. So fill your flask with anointing oil and get going. In those days when you would find a, a king, when you would sort of have a commencement of someone coming into some big form of leadership, you would anoint them with oil. You would pour oil over their head. That was the ritual they had. So he's saying, grab your oil, get going. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've spotted the very king I want among his sons. That ends up being King David. And so here's what, here's what God says to Samuel. He says, Samuel... Yeah, this has gone really badly, but the time of looking behind you is over. It's now time to look forward. What God is saying is, is Samuel, I have moved on from Saul. I'm over it. I've moved on. 
It's time for you to move on. I have moved on. You need to move on. Here is God calling Samuel to move on from his mistake. Moving on is hard, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest, it's so hard. Think about, think about us as people and how easy it is for us to hold on to little things that people have done to us or said to us that have affected us and hurt us. We can hold on to those things for years. Like when I was in high school, I played basketball. And when you look at me, you probably don't think athlete, right? No one does. It's actually my, my, best, my best tool as a, as a basketball player is when I show up, no one even thinks to guard me for like the first three games. It's very helpful. But, but I played basketball my whole life. And, and I, was, I, was the, I was the starter on varsity, all conference. Our team was number one in state. It was just a really small conference, but, you know, that doesn't matter. Um, but I played and, and had some success. That said, I've never looked apart. I've never, even in high school, I didn't look like a basketball player. I've always, I've always been pretty short, and I've, I've always been a little thick, just always have. Since I was a kid, I've always been like that. I've always had a little extra something here just for, for safety. You know, if I ever get stuck out in the cold, I've, I've got a few extra hours on a lot of you. It's good. I've always been that way. And, and you know, some, some people in here don't have this problem where if you sniff a cheeseburger, you gain a pound. You don't know what that's like. I actually have friends. You might have friends like this. So annoying, these people, who will say, like, oh, I know it's, it's, it's hard for me, too. It's hard for me to gain weight. Like, shut up. That's not a problem. That's a superpower, right? It's like, if only, there were, if only they made clothes for skinny people. Oh, oh wait, they do, Yeah. There's no short, chubby jeans. There's skinny jeans, right? Anyway, so I have this problem. So I gain weight really easy. And even in high school, even when I was, I was the starting point guard, I played more minutes than anyone on the team. I was at every practice. I ran. I did all this stuff. I still weighed a little extra than a lot of the other guys, even though they weren't even working out as much as me. It's just how I, how I am. So I had this friend, and he was on the team with me. He wasn't like one of the starters, but he looked like he should have been. He was thin and, and muscular, and he looked like an athlete. And one day we're at team workouts and we had to do weigh-ins and turns out I weighed less than he did. And so, and remember, he's my friend, not my best friend, but, but we get along. He looks at me and he goes, you weigh, you weigh less than me. And I was like, I was like, happy. This is a moment in my life. I'm going, hey, huh, yeah, I guess I do. And then he goes, well, you know what they say, muscle weighs more than fat. And, and I just kind of like, I laughed it off. I was like, yeah, I guess so. But on the inside, I was like, you jerk. I, I so hope you gain so much weight by our 10-year anniversary. When we come back, you know, our 10-year reunion, I, I just I hope you really let yourself go. And I didn't see the guy for like five years after we graduated, and then one day he sent me a Facebook friend request, and I clicked on his profile, hoping that he had let himself go, hoping that we had at least sort of evened out. But no, no, he's one of those guys that got in better shape after high school. Like he lived in a gym or something. The jerk, the audacity that this guy had. And, and here's what's crazy. You cannot say his name to me without me thinking of that line that he said. I mean, it was so small. It was in passing. He was probably joking anyway. And he's actually a good guy. That kind of makes it harder. It makes it worse that he's a good guy, actually. Like, oh, dang it, he loves God and all this stuff. And I just wish he was a jerk because then I could be like, yeah. Uh, but, but he's a good guy. And if you say his name to me, I mean, for the last 10 plus years, if you say his name, if I see him, the first thing that pops in my head is that, that stupid comment that, well, you know what they say, muscle weighs more than fat. That's the first thing. And that's nothing. That, that doesn't rank in the top thousand worst things that have happened to me in life, but I hold on to it. We all, we all have a tendency to do that, right? We hold on to those things. And that's something that's so petty and so small. So if it's hard for us to let go of those things, if it's hard for us to move on from that stuff, how do we move on from the serious stuff in life? 
Like, how do we move on from what's really tragic, from what's really traumatic? How do we get past those times in our, in our past when someone has really wounded us? Someone's really hurt us because in this room there are people who have been hurt deeply by people who shouldn't have hurt them. How do we move on from that? It's easier said than done. And, and, and this morning I want to suggest this one word to you that, that really is, it really is the key to moving on in life. If you want to, if you want to move on, and I hope you do. I hope you do because see, if you don't, what, what, you're, what you're saying to yourself if you refuse to move on from your past, you're saying that, hey, I, I choose to give the past authority over my present and my future. If someone did something to you or said something to you years ago, and you hold on to that, what you're saying is, I'm, I'm going to let that person's words, that person's actions affect me today and tomorrow and tomorrow because that's what happens. Every time we relive those moments in our minds, it has the same effect on us, the same, the same hurt. We experience the same emotions. We allow the past to affect the present. We can't live that way. That's not how we're meant to live. It's not how God wants us to live. So we've got to move on. How do we do that? What's, what's the key? And the key is this one word. It's, it's forgive. Forgiveness is it's the only way to truly move on in life. You've got you to forgive. You've got to forgive aggressively, preemptively, constantly. There's a conversation that we have between Jesus and one of his best friends named Peter. Peter was a very, very special friend of Jesus, a leader in the early church. And Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, to give you some context, in the Jewish community at this time, forgiveness was a big deal. Forgiveness was taught. They understood that people aren't perfect, that people need grace. And the rabbis of that era taught that you should forgive someone three times. You forgive someone three times, that's, that's an ample amount of forgiveness. And if they continue in their behavior, after three times, you, you move from forgiveness to whatever else you move to. Resentment, hatred, I don't know. And so when Peter comes to Jesus and he says, hey, hey, Jesus, like, I'm kind of getting where you're going with this whole ministry of yours, your teaching. So the rabbis say three times, but I'm thinking you're going to say like seven, right? Double the rabbis, and then I'll add one just for good measure. And Jesus says, no, not, not even close. Why don't you think of 70 times seven, which is 490, and then, then we'll, we'll start talking. And that's just preposterous, right? 490 times? 490 times. Can you imagine if someone had been rude to you 489 times? And then comes to you, and you're like counting in your head, and you're like, you got one more, dude. You got one more, and I'm done. I'm done. And obviously Jesus wasn't actually recommending that we keep, keep a count. You know, he doesn't want us to be opening up a journal with like scratch marks and going by fives. He, he's making a point. He's being hyperbolic because he wants... He wants us to understand that whatever amount of forgiveness we think in this world is appropriate, we're not even scratching the surface. And sometimes we read statements like this of Jesus and we feel this pressure, we feel this burden, we feel like Jesus is saying, oh man, here, here's a really difficult task to do, go try to forgive like this, and, and now we have to live up to this and it's impossible. But you need to understand that Jesus is not giving you a burden. Jesus is actually offering you an opportunity to take burdens away. Because Jesus knows that forgiveness is the only thing it is the only thing that frees you from the wounds and the hurts of the past. It's the only thing. You know, Steve was, was the pastor here for years, and, 
And he's, he's my personal mentor, one of my best friends ever. I, I love Steve. And he taught so many messages standing right here that will, will always stick with me. Messages that I'll always remember. If you were here for a long time before, before I was here, he was older than me too. He had white hair and all that kind of stuff. Like he was super mature. Um, and so, and so Steve, he taught these amazing messages. And he taught me about forgiveness. And I saw forgiveness in ways I'd never seen it before when he taught. And I'll never forget this one message that he gave. He was sitting here on a stool because that's how Steve, Steve did things. And he talked about how we can think about life and all the, the hurts and the wounds we have with this metaphor. Every time someone hurts you, someone wounds you, it's like an arrow has been shot into you. And that arrow sticks. And then we get another arrow and another arrow. And it doesn't take a lot of life before you've got a lot of arrows. And now you're trying to live life with all these arrows in you. But the problem is every time you sit down, every time you roll over, every time you try to get some rest, you, you've got these arrows in you. It makes it impossible to rest and relax and have peace because you're, you're full of arrows like a porcupine. And so we've got to figure out a way to get rid of the arrows. How do we do that? The the normal way, the the human way, is you wait until that person realizes what they've done and comes to you and says, I'm so sorry for putting that arrow in you. I would now like to remove it. And even when that happens, if that happens, which is rare, sometimes we go, no, no, no. No, I, I need to carry this one a little bit longer. I need you to really stew in how much you've hurt me. So before I let you take it out, I just need, I need to show it to you. I need to emphasize it, right? Sometimes we, we think that way. But, but more than that, the reality is that that just doesn't happen in life. Like that jerk I went to high school with, he's never going to come to me and say, I'm sorry, Justin, for calling you fat. I'm really sorry about that. He's not gonna, you know why? Because he's not a jerk. Because it didn't matter. And he was probably joking. And I guarantee you he hasn't thought about that statement once since that time. And I've thought about it a lot. So we'll stop. So he's never going to come to me and say, hey, man, I just, this has been bugging me for years. Can I, can I please take that arrow out? It's not going to happen. So if we want to be rid of the arrows so we can have peace and rest and, and live life the way we're meant to live life, lightly, freely, the way Jesus offers us, then we've got to get those, those arrows out. We've got to take them out. How do we do that? I mean, how, how, do, we, how do we do that? Well, see, here's, here's where it really starts. You've got to receive forgiveness so that you can give forgiveness. Because you cannot give what you don't have. You can't. You can't give what you don't have. And so, and so you've got to receive the forgiveness of God in your life so that you have the forgiveness of God that you need to forgive all the people who have hurt you. So that you have the forgiveness you need to, to pull those, those arrows out. You need to receive that forgiveness. You can't give what you don't have. And it's amazing how often, how often I underestimate the grace and the forgiveness of God. And we, we, we become so used to, to grace, so used to these concepts in church. And if you're, if, you're, if you're new to church, grace is just a word that's used in Scripture often to talk about, about God's forgiveness, about how we have grace. There's mercy and grace. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. Grace means you get what you don't deserve. All of it kind of lumps together to be this unbelievable forgiveness of God. And we become so used to this, we sing about it, we read verse after verse about it, we know it, we know it here, but, but sometimes we forget how intense and how unbelievable the grace of God really is. And so we, we don't treat it like it's oxygen, like it's a necessity for daily life. And then we end up running short on it in our own lives, and we don't have a lot of grace to give because we're not receiving what we need. 
If you want to have the ability to take those arrows out, to forgive all the people you need to forgive, you've got to receive the forgiveness of God. You've got to stop and realize how much forgiveness he's actually given you. How much forgiveness you need. That's one of the biggest challenges with with our faith. That's the difference between the, the faith in Jesus and every other faith in this world. I know that's not politically correct to say it, but Jesus is fundamentally different and he's fundamentally better because it makes sense. Because every other religion in the world says this, hey, you do really well, do good, do better, do more, and then God will, will, will accept you. Jesus says, hey, will you just admit that you can't do it? Will you just admit that you need some help? Because if you'll just admit that, I'll, I'll do it for you. That's what Jesus says. That's why Jesus is so different than everyone else in the world. And so, do you daily, daily receive the forgiveness of God in your life? I mean, I, I need that forgiveness so badly. We talk about this, this metaphor of arrows, and we'll, we'll keep this going for a minute. You know the, the arrows I have found are the hardest to remove in my life? It's the ones I put there myself. Because for everyone I've got that someone else gave me, I've got several that I gave myself. I've got a lot of self-inflicted wounds. And seriously, those are the, those are the, the sins and the, the hurts and the mistakes. Those are the, the ones that I have the hardest time moving on from in my life. It's not the things other people have done to me. It's the things that I have allowed to happen to myself or even done to myself. I have a really hard time moving on from my mistakes. So if you've gone to church here for a while, you know this. I haven't talked about it in probably about a year, maybe six months or so. So if you're new, here you go. Um, so I, I dealt with an addiction to pornography for like 15 years. Yeah, it's awkward, right, when someone says that? Imagine how I feel. Okay, so, um, and, and, and all jokes aside, I deal with awkwardness by just being, you know, humorous. That's how I, I cope. Um, you know, pornography is this huge epidemic in our culture, and it's, it's, it's so, it's just from Satan. I mean, it absolutely is. It, it treats women like objects. Uh, it, it, can, it destroys someone's ability to have like a healthy sex life in a marriage. It erodes trust and it, it presents a fantasy that, that is that's not even a good fantasy in place of reality. All Satan offers us is something that's fake and counterfeit and destructive. And that's what pornography is, okay? And so that said... As a man, I knew that, and as a man, I still took part in that because I had an addiction. I was introduced to it at a young age, third grade, before I even knew Jesus, and by the time I hit high school, I was addicted. I didn't realize I was addicted. By the time I, I really got to a place with God where I was, I was broken because of this behavior, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a clue where to start. And, and, and if you're a man, not that, that only men struggle with it, but it is predominantly men, and I'm a man, so I can talk to you. If you're a man that deals with that, struggle, that addiction, maybe you don't even call it an addiction, but you just say, hey, it's a battle or whatever, come talk to me at any time. Send me an email, come up to me, I mean, find a way to get in contact with me, go to the info desk if you don't have my email address, they'll give it to you. I mean, they might give you a generic email address, but it'll get to me and then I'll email you, we'll we'll figure it out. Um, Because I just want you to know that there's hope. And I want you to know that you don't have to live in that, and you don't have to fear what's going to happen if you start to deal with that. You don't have to fear that. I was reading a commentary on the book of 1 John that Ben Sykes, who goes here, wrote. We're all going to be reading this in the next session of Foundations. And he talks about how God is light and how we fear light exposing us, but light doesn't really expose our sin. Light, light washes away the sin. You know, it can't, light, darkness flees from light. 
And so I just want you to know as a man, I'll talk to you, I'll meet with you, I'll connect you with other men who, who have gotten to that same place. I mean, it's, I've been in recovery for five plus years, and so I'm by no means an expert, but I'll do whatever I can because you can have freedom from that. You absolutely can. And so anyway, yeah. But it still is very awkward to say the word pornography. So, um, so you know, I, I got to a place where I realized how destructive this was in my life and how it had to go. How it had to go. And, and I got counseling. And I talked to my wife about it. And that was fun. And, and she forgave me. She moved on. But a year later, even after a year of freedom, I had not moved on. I had moved on from the behavior, but I had not moved on from the guilt. And I had not moved on from the shame. And so here she was forgiving me. She had moved on, and God had moved on. But I had not moved on. I was still, I was still holding on to that, to that arrow in me, feeling like it was, it was my penance to carry it, feeling like the guilt and the shame, that was just what I deserved. And so I'm walking around with a self-inflicted wound that God wants to, to pull out, that God wants to heal, because the mistakes I have the hardest time moving on from are my own. And if you want to have the ability to forgive every, every person that's ever offended you and hurt you, no matter how light, no matter how severe, you got to start with, with forgiveness in your own life. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, do you, do you realize that when it comes to your sin, that God has moved on? That he's over it. And he's not over it in the way that we say we're over it, like, that's it, I'm over it, I'm not taking this anymore. No, he's, he's over it as if, is in the sense that if you went up to God and said, hey God, I'm really sorry for my, for my sin, for this thing, he would look at you and say, oh, I, yeah, I'm totally okay, I've, I'm dealt with that. God does not get angry about the problems that he's already solved. And he has solved the problem of sin with Jesus Christ. So, so he, he's, not, he's not like burning with anger for you. He's burning with passion and with love for you. He's not, he's not upset and disappointed in you. His heart breaks for the pain you feel, but he wants to empower you. I mean, that's not just wishful thinking. Look at scripture, Psalm 103, verse 12. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I will forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. And that's a crazy picture, right? Like going up to God and saying, hey God, I'm sorry for what I did yesterday. And he's like, what'd you do yesterday? You know that, Word that I said when I was upset, and he's like, oh, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And then you think God's playing a game with you. And you're like, what is, is this a test? No? I don't know what's going on. But he's saying, no, I'm not even going to remember your sin. Micah 7, 19. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. I love that. Because it's not like God even just takes our sin and throws them into the ocean just in case they, they can swim or something like that. He steps on them and crushes them over and over again. And then, when they're crushed and they're broken, then he takes them, then he throws them into the ocean. That is how God deals with your sin. So when it comes to your mistakes and, and your past and all the things that you feel guilty and ashamed for, you need to understand that God is saying the same thing to you that he said to Samuel. He saying, I've moved on, it's time for you to move on. It's time for you to move on. It's time for you to move on and receive my forgiveness so that you can start to use my forgiveness to take out all those arrows, to get rid of all that hurt. So we're going to wrap up this morning. And I'm going to ask the worship team if you guys will go ahead and, and make your way 
up this way. Um, and if you want to do that thing you all do sometimes where you play music, I don't know where you guys are. I'm like looking behind me like they're a SWAT team or something about to come. <laughs> like, where's the worship team? They're in the dark. Um, you guys can just feel free to, to play anything or whatever. But, but I'm going to ask us to do something really uncomfortable. And I just admitted in front of a thousand people that I had an addiction to pornography, so just deal with it, okay? Um, I'm just joking. But I'm going to ask us to sit for a moment in prayer. This was actually Nathan's idea. We didn't do this in the first service. And he came up to me and said, hey, we should do this. And I was like, yeah, you're right, we should. We should. Because we actually have the opportunity here not to just leave saying, <clears throat> excuse me, not to say, we'll deal with this later, we'll, we'll get to this, yeah, I'll, I'll receive that forgiveness, I'll start working on that. But we can deal with a lot right now. I mean, God, God can do a lot in a moment. And so what I want to ask you to do, this uncomfortable thing, is, is we're going we're gonna to pray while the worship team just pray, play some music, and then that'll kind of go into, into worship. And so... I'll just sort of feel it out, and when I say amen, whatever. Um, but I want to ask you to, to think about two things. Two things. Number one, your worst failure. It's fun, right? It's a good, you didn't expect this. Your worst failure, whatever, whatever failure and mistake in your life or in your past, you feel like God must be the most upset about. I want you to think about that. And then I want you to think, and this is even harder in some ways, about whatever offense has been committed against you in life that, that hurts you the most. Someone else has done something to you. And what you have to realize as you think through this, as we pray through this, is that God has moved on. And he wants you to move on. That doesn't mean he's dismissive of the pain you feel. No. But he doesn't want you to live in that pain. He doesn't want you to live in guilt. He doesn't want you to live in shame. He wants you to live in freedom and in victory. And that comes from forgiveness. We're going to receive his forgiveness and we're going to do our best to begin a process of giving that forgiveness. And when Jesus said, hey, forgive 70 times 7, look, when it comes to those offenses that have been done against you, you may have to forgive 490 plus times. You may say, hey, I forgive it today. And then 10 minutes later in the car, you're like, you know what? I'm not sure if I'm ready yet. And forgive it again. And tomorrow, forgive it again. And a year from now, forgive it again. Because every time you forgive it, you get peace. And eventually, eventually that forgiveness, it will destroy whatever hatred, whatever bitterness, whatever hurt that's there. Forgiveness is the only way. So if you'd bow your heads with me and pray. Holy Spirit, every single one of us in this room, no matter how old we are, no matter how old we are, no matter what stage of life we're in, We've all been hurt, God. We, we're, all, we're all full of arrows. We've got arrows that other people have put into us. Some are really deep, God. We've got arrows that we've put into ourselves. We've got arrows that have been in us and we've tried to remove them in the past and we maybe got them halfway out, but then we just we couldn't do any more. God, we don't want to be wounded people. We don't, we don't want to have our past Hold us back. We want to move. We want to move forward in life. And we can't move forward if we don't move on. So Holy Spirit, we want to start with whatever that, whatever that frustration and failure in our own lives, that self-inflicted wound. We want to begin there, Holy Spirit. And so Lord, you know, you know what mine is and every person in this room knows what theirs is. God, right now as we, as we think about about this failure in our lives, this thing that we maybe worry that that you are so disappointed in us, that you're so ashamed. God, I pray that every single one of us hears these words and understands that these words are not just made up, 
for an emotional moment, but these words are your words that you speak to us. You have moved on. You have taken our sin and you've placed it as far as the east is from the west. You have crushed our sin underneath your feet and you have thrown it into the ocean. That you are over our sin, that you have forgotten our sin. And God, we're not like you. We, we remember everything. We have a hard time forgetting our, our failures and our mistakes. But Lord, right now, we are asking you for the strength to move on. That you would give us the strength, God, to move on from our mistakes, to move on from our failures, so that we can move forward into the life that you have for us. We need to receive your forgiveness to receive your grace. And Lord, I know saying that, that there are people in this room that have never received your forgiveness before. And I pray right now for those people that, that right now in their hearts, they would say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I'm tired. I'm tired of feeling the shame and guilt. I'm tired of feeling the weight and the burden. So take it off of me, Lord. Let me trust your forgiveness. We call that salvation, by the way. And Lord, we, we think about not only our own failures, but, but the wounds that other people have given to us, God. And I know that right now some of those might be minor, but some of those might be so traumatic. Some of those might be criminal. Devastating. And God, we know that it was not your will that those things were done to us. You aren't, you aren't like that. You're a good father. And you never intended for that person to say what they said or to do what they did to us, Lord, but they did it anyway. Because we live in a fallen world. And God, we, we might be so angry at that person, it may take us the rest of our lives to forgive, but if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Because we're sick and tired of being affected by the past. We're sick and tired of holding on to the hurt. We don't want to hold on anymore, Jesus. We want to move on. So Holy Spirit, give us that ability right now to say in our heart, I've moved on. I have, I have moved on on. Just like you have moved on Jesus, I have moved on. I will move on from this. I will escape this. I will leave it in the past. I will leave it buried. I will leave it behind. I will move on. God, help us move on. Help us know that you've moved on and give us the strength to follow you, to move with you, to move away from the hurt and the pain and to move toward life and to move toward joy and to move toward peace and love and everything you have for us, Jesus, because it's real. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. God, I praise you for I just praise you for being real. This is not a manufactured moment. This is not about emotions. God, this is about our lives. You died for us. You pursue us. You refuse to leave us alone. And sometimes we wish you would, to be honest. Because you mess with us. Oh, but God, if we're really honest, we, we need you, we love you. And when we're really honest with ourselves, we can just surrender and say, hey, mess with me. Stir in my heart, move me. We want to move on. God, this next song that we're going to sing, you already know how it goes because I think you inspired it. 
but we cry out over and over again in this song that we are yours. And see, Lord, when we refuse to move on from those, those sins in our own life or those sins that have been committed against us, it's like we're telling those things that we belong to them, that they have power over us, that they have influence over us, that they have the control. But right now, this song that we're about to sing, this is a declaration of us, Jesus, saying those things, those sins of our own, those sins that have been committed against us, they don't own us. They don't have power over us. We are not theirs. We are yours. We are the children of God. We are the children of God, covered by the blood of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God in our lives, and we refuse to live life in the past. We refuse to live looking backwards. We're ready to move on, and we say this in your name, Jesus, as we worship you. Amen.